Welcome to a St. Gabriel Catholic Radio special presentation of Father Earl Fernandez, Bishop-elect for the Diocese of Columbus. Happy Easter, Father Fernandez. Happy Easter. The Lord is risen. He is truly risen. He has risen indeed, uh, Bill Messerly with Dave Orsborne, and we're sitting here to allow you to speak directly to our radio listeners. Uh, Father Fernandez, your family was the most um, important part of your life. You even mentioned in your press conference that the greatest greatest death of gratitude was to your parents. Yeah, I mean, after Almighty God and the Blessed Virgin Mary, who's my patron uh, patroness, I think I owe the greatest uh, debt of gratitude to my parents who made every sacrifice for their boys to have a better life. Uh, people often ask me about my vocation story, and in order to understand my vocation story, you really have to understand my family of origin. My uh, father and mother were married uh, December 28, 1963, in Bombay, India. My fa- father's family is originally from Mangalore. My mother's family is from Goa. Goa is where St. Francis Xavier and the first Jesuit missionaries came. Essentially, they were raised in Bombay, or Mumbai, as they call it now. Uh, and they had uh, two boys. Uh, uh, my brother Carl was born in 1966. My uh, brother Trevor was born in 1968. And my dad was a physician there trying to provide for his family, but medicines were hard to get. India was becoming very crowded. It was, it was very difficult to practice the art of medicine. And he wanted a better life for his family. Like so many uh, immigrants, you dream of the new world and, and what America has to offer. At that time, the Vietnam War was on, and there was a shortage of physicians in the United States. And so my dad took his U.S. medical licensure exam still while in India, and he passed. And so a green card was granted him uh, to him immediately. And he wound up moving to Toledo, Ohio, mostly because the Sisters of Mercy had promised uh, that, uh, that they would give him a place to stay when he arrived. So he rode his motorcycle to the airport, sold it there, had all his possessions in a trunk, and had it shipped over, and he arrived in the United States. And the sisters did give him a place to stay, and he began to work as a physician. A few months later, he was able to bring my mom and brothers over. Uh, and so that began the journey uh, of our family uh, to the New World. And uh, and we didn't have any family in the United States still. To this day, I only have one cousin uh, who lives down in Tampa, and I have three cousins now who have moved to Canada. But other than that, uh, no family in these parts. And so in 1971, 72, and 73, uh, my, uh, my parents had three more boys, and I'm the middle of those three younger ones uh, born here in American soil. So you can imagine an immigrant family new to the United States having three boys in three years right after coming. So then you know, we were a family of seven, five boys and my parents trying to make it. And, uh, and at that time in 1970, there was a lot of uh, prejudice still, e- even in the North, in part because of Cesar Chavez and the migrant worker movement. With a name like Fernandez, with our particular complexion, it wasn't always easy to make it. But my mother, from some of these experiences, um, kind of thought, well, you know what, we don't have any family in this country except for one another uh, and and the church. And so you boys are going to have to work hard and pray hard and study hard. And, and that's, in fact, what we did. My mother had been a school teacher. Uh, in India. So she strongly, and both my parents emphasized education. But like kids would go to the zoo and they see the animals and things like that. We'd go to the zoo, see the animals, and have to come back and write essays about the animals we <laughs> saw at the zoo. So education was important. And we went to a St. Thomas Aquinas uh, church and school on the east side of Toledo. It's now been merged with several other parishes. 
Uh, but the, it, it was all poor working class people. People were hardworking, salt of the earth type people. Uh, there was always a, it seemed like there was a, the, the roof in the school was leaking. We were taught by the Ursuline sisters, the school and the church were right next to an oil refinery. During the Carter and Ford years, I have very distinctive memories when the economy was bad and, um, you know, people's fathers would be out of work for a couple of years and, you know, the nuns would get on the PA system and ask everyone to pray that so-and-so would find work. You'd see, you know, the men of the parish, they try to work hard to provide for their families, but they couldn't. Some of the kids would be a little thinner. The men, their shoulders would be shrugged. But the priests kind of had a vision, like they'd say, okay, well, if you guys, if you, you and you, I know you're out of work, but your kids can stay in the school if you run the orange and grapefruit drive. So they had a way of making use of people's gifts and talents. And so for us, uh, we had one another and we had the church and we went to school and, the, and we went to mass with the people from the neighborhood. Uh, my family, even though my father was a doctor, he didn't want others to know what he did for a living because he didn't want, and he didn't want us to tell him because he didn't want there to be any kind of uh, discrimination or uh, looking down on somebody because we were white collar and they they were blue collar, all this sort of thing. And this is just how we grew up. Um, everybody worked hard. Everybody made sacrifices for one another. And so you really had a sense of community. Uh, and that's kind. Of, and when my father died about two and a half years ago, it was those people from the old neighborhood uh, who showed up. And at his wake and at the funeral mass. Uh, and it was very moving. Some of them I hadn't seen for five or 10 years, but it was just like my own flesh and blood. Uh, it was, and so it was a great life growing up. People lived very simply, but they had fundamental you know, values. Uh, so that was important to me. I, I also think that my parents, of course, grew up in British India, at least the first 10 years of their life or so. And so growing up in the United States, we have freedoms that other people don't have. And my father so wanted to become an American citizen, he knew there was a citizenship exam, so he memorized the whole Constitution. And so we were instilled with the values of freedom. He was also a fierce anti-communist. I remember once later on, when we were maybe in high school, uh, there was a film, The Hunt for the Red October, and my brother had bought the the soundtrack for just playing the record. And on it was the Soviet national anthem. My father uh, burst into his room, took the record right off the record player, broke it over his knee and said, this will never be played in this house and threw it in the trash. Uh, so there was a great appreciation uh, for freedom uh, as well as faith. Uh, growing up then, I mentioned, okay, we studied hard, but we prayed hard. I mean, we prayed the rosary every night as children. Uh, as a family, we boys, we knelt in our living room and we prayed. And we prayed our, our fathers and Hail Marys uh, as fast as we could, because usually we had to pray the rosary during our favorite television programs. Um, and after the rosary, we had to pray the Angelus, the Litany of Loretto, a perpetual novena. Uh, it's a little flower. One our father, one Hail Mary for the four souls in purgatory. One our father, one Hail Mary uh, for peace in the world and the family. One our father, one Hail Mary for all these different intentions. But we grew up with a life of faith and a devotional life. Uh, my parents would take us on pilgrimage each year. Uh, to the Shrine of Our Lady of Consolation in Cary, Ohio. And so we would pray with the relics of St. Anthony, or we'd follow in the rosary procession with the statue of Our Lady of Consolation. We would have exposition and benediction. So these were things that were just part of our childhood growing up, and we didn't realize that most of our peers didn't have this in their home. 
Uh, and my parents were very attentive also to our own catechesis. So that time in the 70s and early 80s, catechesis, as you can imagine, wasn't so good in a lot of Catholic elementary schools. My father and mother sat there with the Baltimore Catechism and taught us, um, you know, taught us the catechism. So we really were being formed um, in the home, and I, that, that made a lasting uh, impression upon me. And then as growing up in the parish in which we grew up, we were all altar boys. And so we were around the priest, and it was around that time maybe that I started thinking about being a priest, in part because I felt perfectly at ease at, at church. It was like my second home, my home away from home. And so uh, it was no surprise to me that when I... Well, it was a little surprising to me, uh, but my eighth grade classmates, when we were finishing up, we all had to predict what we'd be in 50 years, and my classmates predicted that I would be the first American pope. And so my family's uh, uh, influence on my own vocation was was very important. And Father, I, I know from uh, the press conference that, that you did uh, introducing you to uh, the Diocese of Columbus, the medical profession is uh, obviously um, your father's profession, and also through your siblings. But it seems it's as much of a um, a vocation of service um, is what is what I heard, rather than just a profession. Oh, absolutely. So I think my father always saw medicine as an art, but I think medicine should be seen within the context of the proclamation of the kingdom. Jesus performs all kinds of healing miracles in the Gospels. And those are part of the proclamation of the kingdom, and when the kingdom comes in its fullness, there will be more, no more suffering and death. So doctors and nurses, healthcare providers, help build the kingdom of God, and the, and the Church has been uh, at the forefront of that since the very beginning of bringing healing to our world. Certainly my father, he, he was a great physician, he was not a great businessman. So we didn't—many uh, physicians are very well-to-do. We were not. Uh, and but my father thought, well, if his patients couldn't pay, what am I supposed to do? Not treat them? And so he would, he would, you know, he would uh, very often just treat patients for free, or if they wanted to pay him with apples or oranges, well, that's what he took. I mean, he, because he saw it much more as a vocation to bring healing and to fight the pro-life cause. My mother uh, would send us off to school. We'd pray our morning offering, and then she'd say, "Pray that you be a good boy, a tall boy, and a doctor." Uh, and, of course, I'm, I'm uh, the tallest one in my family, so I'm at least one for three. Uh, but uh, three of my four brothers uh, became doctors. Uh, my brother Carl, my oldest brother, and my youngest brother Eustace, um, they are both pulmonary critical care physicians. My brother Ashley, uh, who lives there in Columbus, uh, he's a pediatrician, uh, but he has a doctorate in philosophy from Georgetown. So he's a pediatrician at Ohio State, but also and works at Nationwide Children's, but he also is uh, an assistant director for the Institute for Bioethics and Medical Humanities at Ohio State. All three of my brothers then went to medical school at uh, Ohio State. Uh, and then I have a, my second oldest brother, Trevor. Uh, he's a magistrate up in Toledo. So my parents emphasized education, but also success because my mother you know some of the some of the challenges we encountered as immigrants she thought well people will respect doctors and so we worked hard and medicine was a very noble profession to serve the sick to give them comfort to give them hope or to to offer them compassion when they're you know when they were terminal uh, and my father was great at that but in those days we lived not far from the hospital you could just walk across the fields and go into the hospital, and we'd look for my dad, and very often we either found him in the library or in the chapel on his knees. 
praying for his patients, praying uh, for God's strength to do what he needed to do or to discern or even just to receive consolation from the Lord. And I think all of us sort of caught that, whether it was from the uh, family rosary or seeing my father at prayer or even noticing my mother at prayer. I, she would have a statue of the Virgin with the pictures of her children and later on grandchildren there in the arms or at the feet of the Virgin or around Good Friday or so on. My mother, we had this kind of a kind of a cheesy 3D picture of Jesus on the cross. And if you looked at him one way, his eyes would be open. If you looked at him the other, his eyes would be closed and he would be dead. My mother would sing songs like, Oh, Sacred Head Surrounded, to this image. And then she would burst out in tears and would beat her breast and say, You know, my sins did this, my sins did this. So for my parents, the faith was real. It wasn't just something contrived or external to the way they lived. It wasn't a purely formalistic sort of faith. And eventually we began to understand why we prayed as a family every day. Um, and now it's really bearing fruit in my brother's lives and in my life because we're also practicing the faith. Um, and so I, I, we really owe a lot to my parents. And, and Father, you, you chose medical school, right, um, after college, so you actually That's began right. medical school. When did, that, when did you really start experiencing that tug between the priesthood and, and, and becoming a doctor? Did that happen before medical school? It, it did happen before medical school. So, you know, I had this mantra in my head, be a good boy, be a tall boy, be a doctor. And when I went <laughs> to high school, I was taught by the Oblates of St. Francis de Sales, and so we had religious brothers and priests teaching us, not just religion, but chemistry, physics, calculus. So it was perfectly normal to consider a priestly vocation. I remember my junior year of high school in our religion class, they asked, have you ever thought about being a priest? And I checked the box, yes. Would you like to receive more literature about becoming a priest? And I checked the box, yes, and came to my parents' house, and my father had it. Uh, and, uh, and so he and I talked about it a little bit then. I was very good in school. I graduated second in my high school class. I was good in Latin. I received a presidential scholarship to Xavier University to major in Latin and Greek. But I said, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, and that'd be useful if I'm going to become a priest, but I'm going to become a doctor. Even though my inclination was to become a priest, but I kept on hearing these kind of words of my mother and everyone will respect doctors and all this sort of thing. And I saw the good that my father had done. But then I went to the University of Toledo and was pre-med biology. And I, my third year of college, I lived in England. And I thought, well, this is the first time I'm away from home. This is probably when I'm going to start, start skipping Mass. Uh, but there was a priest chaplain at uh, Salford University, which is near Manchester. His name was Father Ian Kelly. And he, he was a great preacher. He had a great singing voice. There was something attractive about him. I not only didn't start skipping Mass, but I started to go to Mass every day with the other students who were part of the Catholic Society. But one day I said to myself, I'm going to go talk to that priest about my vocation. So I made an appointment to see him. And I was sitting outside his office, and he opened the door, and he said, Earl, come into my office. You're sitting there looking like a bishop. And I laughed, and I said, funny <laughs> that you say that, Father, because I was thinking about uh, being a priest. I wanted to talk to you about that. It was around uh, Christmas time, and I was going to go travel through Europe with uh, some of my friends from college and high school on one of those Eurorail passes to take the trains everywhere. And this Father Kelly uh, gave me this quotation from Romano Guardini, which he had me memorize. Uh, the cross is a symbol above every other symbol. Anyone who defiles or impugns it renders the world to unintelligibility. And so I memorized this, and I was thinking about this every day as I traveled through Europe, and then I came to 
St. Peter's Basilica at Christmas time. I was with my best friend from high school who happened to be studying in Edinburgh. And we walked into St. Peter's Basilica, and I saw the stained glass window of the Holy Spirit there in the apse. And my heart began to beat very quickly. And I looked over to my right, and there was Michelangelo's Pieta. And we began touring through the Basilica. You see many of the saints and things buried there. And we went down into the crypt where the popes are buried. And I came to the tomb of St. Peter, and I fell to my knees. And there I knew, look, God's calling me to be a priest. And this quote from Guardini came right into my mind. But what did I do? Well, I went back home to the States. I took my MCAT. I was accepted to the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. I got back together with my old girlfriend. Anything I could do to avoid responding to the call. You try to run, you try to run, but eventually God catches you. So I moved to Cincinnati to go to the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine, and I lived not far from a church on University of Cincinnati's campus. So I was going there every day for Mass, and one day the priest said kind of a fast Mass. And so I... Uh, I said, Father, you said a kind of fast mass. I hadn't left an hour for communion. Do you think you could uh, get me a host? Uh, could I receive communion? And he begrudgingly went to the tabernacle. He says, you know, God doesn't wear a wristwatch. And I said, I know that, Father, but my, this one my parents taught me. So he, I received communion, but we grew up receiving communion on the tongue. And he, the priest then said to me, well, uh, you got to get over that. And I said, well, Father, you know, this one my parents taught me. And you know, people often say, well, if you, can, if you can hold it in your hand, then it must not be God. So, you know, if it was good enough for my parents and their parents before them, well, that'll be good enough for me. Well, one thing led to another, and I got a bit into a big fight with the priest who went on to say that Mass wasn't a sacrifice, that uh, St. Isaac Jogue and the Jesuit martyr who were the butchers of Indians, that non-Catholics, non-Christians should be able to receive communion, all kinds of things. And I, my faith was shaken. And I thought, well, if this is what the Catholic priest uh, is saying, this can't be the Catholic Church in which I was raised or the faith in which I was raised. But I remember what Father Ian Kelly once told me. He said, Earl, if an Irishman doesn't like the bartender, does he give up drinking? He said, no, he just goes to the next <laughs> pub up the road. So I went uh, uh, not far from where I lived, was Sacred Heart Italian Church down in Camp Washington section of Cincinnati. And there were two Italian priests. There were Scalabrini fathers. Uh, and uh, one was 85, one was 75, and they just came out and had mass. And Trinsantophone paid such and such. It was a very beautiful church, but dimly lit. They didn't preach. They just said the mass. And they looked happy. And I thought to myself, I could be a priest and be that old and be happy. The younger of the two, Father Mario, he was celebrating his 50th anniversary as a priest that year. He'd come to the United States in 1945, knowing no English to be a missionary. So I said, I'm going to talk to him about my vocation. And I began this dialogue while I was in medical school. So when I was in medical school, I felt much more peace, much happier in church rather than in the classroom. And so, talking to Father Mario then, I thought, I will, I'm going to do something about my vocation this time. I'm not going to run for it, from it. While I have my courage up, I know. So I called the vocation director in Toledo, where I had lived and grown up. I called seven times. I never got a phone call back. The dean of the medical school, he had been a, uh, he was a Catholic. And he said, well, I know this Jesuit priest in Chicago who's also a physician. Why do you call him? And I called this priest, and he was a nice guy. He said, well, look, I entered the society when I was 18. Uh, you, you've done your college. You've done two years of medical school. My suggestion is finish your medical school, date for a while, and if it doesn't work out, give us a call back in 10 years. I thought, well, what, what, what's that? <laughs> uh, and uh, so I called the vocation director in Cincinnati at the time. His name was Father Mark Watkins. And he returned my phone call. And he said, look, I don't know what to tell you. You want to find out 
whether you want to be a doctor or a priest or a Jesuit. He said, I know a priest in Covington who used to be a Jesuit. Now he's a diocesan priest, but he knows about a house of spiritual discernment in Rome. Why don't you talk to him? And that was this priest, Father Bill Hines. He told me about this house in Rome called the Casa Balthasar. So it was a house of spiritual discernment. So I went over there for a year, 1996-1997. Father Jacques Servais was the rector. He's a Belgian Jesuit. But on the board was Father Joseph Fessio of Ignatius Press Books. Mm-hmm. It was Father Mark Ouellette, who was a Canadian priest, who uh, was teaching in Rome at the time, who was now the prefect of the Congregation for Bishops. Another uh, member of the board was Monsignor Christoph Schoenborn, who had lived there wow. writing the Catechism of the Catholic Church uh, as a secretary. He's the Cardinal Archbishop in Vienna. And the Cardinal Protector of the Cause of Altasar was Joseph Ratzinger, who <laughs> became Benedict XVI. And there I was in this kind of international house for a year trying to discern my vocation. And the orarium of the day was almost exactly the same, day after day after day. But that allowed us to be more in touch with the movements of the Spirit. And after a year or so there, I decided to enter the seminary in Cincinnati in 1997. So I was in the Cincinnati, Mount St. Mary Seminary of the West in Cincinnati from 97 to 2002. Uh, And when I got ordained in 2002, um, I was assigned to teach uh, at Lehman Catholic High School in Sydney, Ohio, and to work at Holy Angels Parish there. And so it was a great first assignment. When I first moved back to Cincinnati from Rome in 97, uh, even before I started the seminary, I lived with this priest, Monsignor Amen. Monsignor Amen was a great old priest. He was ordained in 1950, a canon lawyer, very strict, old school. He had had seven hip replacements, and he soldiered on. And he really set a good example for me for the life of prayer, of the need to follow uh, the code of canon law, about visiting the sick. I mean, one time there was an elevator that was out, and he had to climb seven flights of stairs to bring a, a homebound person communion, and he did it. And then coming down the stairs, he had an awful lot of pain. I, you know, I was worried about him falling. I said, Monsignor, um, look, if you fall, don't worry, I'll catch you. He said, no, if I fall, we'll both be dead. Uh, <laughs> and he, but he, he, he was a great priest. And then when I, you know, at our seminary, we did two years of theology, and then we did a pastoral year. And there I was stationed with a priest who was com- a complete opposite of Monsignor Amen, in the sense that he would wear a green golf shirt that said himself. He would wear white pants, green socks, white shoes. And he would say Mass every day, and he liked sports, and he liked to drink his beer and play his cards. Uh, and, but he was perfectly comfortable in his own skin. And what he taught me was that you can have fun and be a priest, and you can smile and be a priest, and you can be human. And I think that's something, and he had a marvelous way of being with the sick and the poor. And so we were like night and day in a way, but we got along marvelously well. And so there was a sense of fraternity and the need to get along with other priests uh, in your own diocese. And sometimes we were a lot more like Abbott and Costello, uh, but we, we had a great time. And then I finished up my seminary and was stationed with Father Jerry Benzman. He was the pastor at Holy Angels in Sydney. He had been mentored by Monsignor Amen. Uh, so I knew kind of what I was getting, but like Monsignor Amen, he was a good mentor. He was strict with himself. We prayed uh, the liturgy of the hours and ate together every day. He was a workaholic, and I was a workaholic. He kept me disciplined with, like, look, you're one-quarter time at the high school, you're three-quarter time at the parish. Uh, and, he was, and he was a wholesome priest. Uh, and so... Again, I was blessed by the priests who mentored me. And then 
teaching high school is a wonderful experience being with young people. I was actually closer to my students' age than I was to their parents' age. <laughs> and so I had a lot of fun teaching high school to see the enthusiasm of young people. And two of my former students became priests. And I had a lot of weddings of, uh, of kids uh, whom I taught, and many of them live in the Columbus area. So and that's one of the things that excites me about coming to Columbus. And so I was at Holy Angels and teaching at Lame, and everything was going well. And when you're a young guy and people are always rooting for you, you're learning the ropes, you're having a great time, you're in the sacramental flow. And then the rector of the seminary called me. I'd been ordained maybe a year and a half. He said, look, I'd like to come and see you. And so I went, uh, I met him like halfway, because Sydney's about 90 miles north of Cincinnati. And he said, look, they want, we want to send you for further studies. Uh, to study moral theology or think maybe you'd study in Rome. I said, well, you mean in about a year and a half when my first assignment's up? He's like, no, uh, this coming, you know, July, August, we want to send you to, to brush up on your Italian and, and then start. And so I knew that my second Christmas was going to be my last Christmas in the parish. Mm-hmm. And then there was the, kind of the long goodbye. But it was a beautiful experience. And then I went to Rome in 2004. And so from uh, 2004 until November of 2007, I worked. I did a lot, two years doing a licentiate degree and a year doing a doctoral degree in moral theology. But during that time, 2004, 2005 is when John Paul II um, was very sick, and then he was in his agony, and then eventually, you know, he died. And it was a grace-filled moment. And then I happened to be in St. Peter's Square when none other than Joseph Ratzinger came out on the balcony as Benedict XVI. The fraternity I had during those years in Rome was wonderful, uh, and I, I met priests from all over the country, and it was a healthy house of priests, and so I have lifelong friends that I made there. And then in February 2008, I returned to the United States, and I uh, began as academic dean of Mount St. Mary Seminary and taught moral theology. During those eight years, then, of teaching uh, in the seminary, I, uh, and working as the academic dean, I would also say Mass at Guardian Angels Church, which was kind of just across the street from the seminary. It was a big parish, and I got to know and to love the people of that parish. Spent more than six, six and a half years saying Mass at that, uh, that parish on the weekends. In the meantime, then, you get a real sense of spiritual fatherhood uh, educating uh, seminary. And when my father died, one of my former students, who was a priest at Toledo, happened to be the pastor of my parents' parish. It was very accommodating in that, um, uh, to our family and, and very compassionate in accompanying us. Some of my former students, now I see them working with young people. I see the fruits of the labor. When you're a seminary professor, it's hard because you're thinking, man, I'd love to be in the parish. When you've been in Rome for four years behind a desk, and then you're behind a desk again as an administrator or formator, you're longing to be in the parish. And but you have to kind of live vicariously, if you will, at times through your students. But I got a real sense of spiritual fatherhood, uh, and I preached some of those guys' first masses or dusted them as priests. And I did that then from 2008 until 2016. The last two years of the seminary, though, where the Scalabrini fathers had been, they finally retired at age 93 and 84. And so they needed a priest who knew uh, English, Italian, and Latin to take over that parish. And so I administrated that parish for almost two years. But then in February 2016, the Holy, it was the Jubilee Year of Mercy. The Holy Father was uh, commissioning 800 priests around the world to be these missionaries of mercy. And I was one of those priests. So I was uh, 
in Rome. I was actually having coffee with Archbishop Gustinoia when I got an email from my Archbishop and the Schnur. And Archbishop Schnur said, look, uh, Archbishop Vigano, the papal nuncio, uh, contacted me. He needs a, he needs a, he want, he would like you to come and work at the Apostolic Nunciature. I hadn't really even heard what a nunciature was. Uh, please come and see me when you get back to, to the United States. So I did. And Archbishop Schneur said, well, I did it before. I, it's, it's a desk job. So I, I made my way to Washington, D.C. I had one day free in my calendar for three weeks. And so I, on that day, the day after I met with Archbishop Schneur, I went to Washington and I met Archbishop Vigano, who I had met in 2000. He had come to our seminary in 2011 or 2012 to give a talk or something like that. Um, but I met him for about five minutes, thinking I would be interviewing with him. I had my resume. I was waiting for him to ask me questions. He's like, look, um, pleased to meet you. Look, I have the Haitian ambassador here. I have to talk to him. This is Monsignor Marchese. He's from Brooklyn. He'll show you around. He'll... And they just kind of showed me around as if, and I was still waiting for the interview, but it was already more or less a done deal. I was going to work there as a secretary. And I thought, oh, it's a desk job. I had no idea what I'd be doing at the Nunciature. Um, and so in 2016, I began working at the Apostolic Nunciature. Archbishop Vigano uh, finished up shortly thereafter, and in um, in June of 2019, Archbishop Pierre uh, uh, came to the United States as the Apostolic Nuncio. And so for most of my time, I then worked uh, for Archbishop Pierre until November of 2019, when finally I was appointed as pastor of St. Ignatius of Loyola Church here in Cincinnati, uh, where there was kind of a crisis, and so they needed a priest to to help um, help the people here at this parish kind of begin moving forward and begin healing. And where were you, and when did you receive this latest call? The actual the call. So, um, <laughs> so I because I worked with our Trish Pierre, he and I talk regularly. <laughs> so I was at my parish Mondays. I try to take as a day off. Uh, it was March twenty first. I was. Um, I was walking down the hallway into my office, and I saw Christophe Pierre. I better answer this. So uh, the nuncio, uh, he says, ah, Father Earl, Father Earl. I said, Excellency, I was just thinking about you. I was thinking about this and this and this. I was going to call you. And he said, well, where are you? I said, I'm in the hallway, right about to walk in my office. I walk in my office now, and I close the door behind me. He says, are you alone? And I said, yes. <laughs> uh, and then he said, are you sitting down? And I said, I'm in my chair. And then I was like, are you alone? Are you sitting down? Which is how we used to joke, how we always ask people to be bishop. And all of a sudden, I got this burning sensation in my gut. Uh, and then he said, the Holy Father has nominated you to be the next bishop of Columbus. And I wheeled my chair around, as I'm doing now, and I looked at this picture I have of my parents after my Mass of Thanksgiving at my parish up in Toledo. And I wheeled my chair around, and I looked over at my crucifix, and I said, I accept Having worked at the Nunciature, I know how difficult it is to find bishops and uh, and what difficult and challenging work it is for the diplomats and the local collaborators to, to help diocese find bishops. And so, so I don't have a good reason to say no. Um, the Holy Father has appointed me, so I accept. Um, and then the Nunciature said, well, I think, uh, I think uh, you know, we worked well together at the Nunciature. I think you... You know, you have a, a great mind. You understand the mind of Pope Francis. You have this missionary spirit. I think these years in the parish uh, have, have brought you good experience. You'll do well there, Columbus. You know, it's a big diocese. Um, it's going to be a growing city. I said, yeah, they're going to add 
they say, a million people in the next 10 years. He said, I know, I know. He says, the Josephinum is there. You have to be attentive to that. Uh, and so we talked. And then I said to him, you know, Excellency, um, I've never told anyone this before, but when my father was on his deathbed, I uh, asked him if there was anything more he wanted to teach his grandchildren. And he gave me a number of things, and that became the substance of my father's funeral homily. Um, but then he held my hand as I was walking away, grabbed my hand, and said, look, I don't know what the Holy Father will do in your regard, but if he asks, you must accept. He said, we have problems in the Church, and the Church needs good shepherds. You accept, and, but you remember your, your, your humble origins. Remember to be humble, remember your family, remember your faith, and above all, remember Jesus Christ. We need good shepherds. We need shepherds after the heart of Christ. I said, Excellency, in some way, his words are prophetic now. And so I think about that, but that's how that moment happened. But then um, and then she said, okay, well, I'll call your archbishop. He's the metropolitan archbishop, and we'll try to, and once he calls back, then we'll try to fix the, the date and the time of the, the announcement of the publication and the ordination. I'll call Bishop Brennan and let him know. And so that's what happened. And eventually, later on that afternoon, my archbishop called me, uh, and we, we fixed the date um, for the publication. At that time, uh, normally they publish those things on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and, uh, but the week after, I had my Paris Lenten mission happening. We had Father Rich Veras, who often writes for Magnificat. He was coming down from New York to preach the Paris Lenten mission. Also, the, that following week, uh, the kids from our confirmation class were being confirmed. And I didn't want the Lenten mission or their confirmation to be overshadowed. So I said to my archbishop, how about April 2nd? Uh, I said, that's John Paul II's death anniversary. Um, that's a good date. And Archbishop Schnurr, he kind of he chuckled. He said, yeah, you know what, that's actually the date I was uh, consecrated as a bishop. Uh, so we picked April 2nd as the, um, as the consecration date. And then based on the nuncio's calendar, uh, May 31st, the Feast of the Visitation was set as the uh, date of uh, Episcopal ordination. Beautiful. Two more questions, uh, if I sure. can, uh, Father. The um, mottos, in terms of mottos, uh, uh, mottos, and I'm not trying to get a scoop here or anything, but yeah. um, I want to ask um, your, your priestly motto. I, am I correct that when your ordination card, is there typically a motto? I did not pick one. I was ordained on the Vigil of Pentecost and had my uh, first Mass on Pentecost. So okay. uh, I've never picked one myself, but uh, throughout my priesthood, a kind of a, a scriptural verse that has always been in my mind was, um, you know, Gaudete in Domino, you know, Ethern Dico Gaudete, Dominus in Propeus from St. Paul. You know, rejoice in the Lord always, I say it again, Gaudete, uh, rejoice, everyone, uh, the Lord is near. Okay, so that was always close to me, and I'm a happy and smiling sort of priest. Uh, I, people always say, oh, Father, you're always smiling, you're always smiling, and I am. Um, I love being a priest. I, when I, especially at Mass, I see Jesus upon the altar, and I can gaze at Him, and He gazes back at me, to know the Lord's love brings joy to my heart. Um, but I never picked one officially as a priest, but, um, but in designing... My SEMA, my crest, you also have to come up with a motto. Uh, and so I, I, I've come up with my motto and, uh, and been working with uh, Dr. Uh, Renato Poletti, who's an uh, expert in ecclesiastical heraldry in Rome, uh, to, to design the crest. 
And, and when will that be announced? I don't know that it's a secret. Uh, I mean, I'll tell you, because I've been very close uh, to the, the lay movement, communion and liberation, mm-hmm. uh, since probably, well, when I, when I went to, back to Rome in 2008 for my studies, uh, I encountered the movement, uh, in part because I, I went to learn Italy up near, uh, Italian, relearn Italian up near uh, Lago Maggiore. And there was a diocesan hotel called, in the Diocese of Novara near Milan, uh, called uh, Il Chiostro. It's an old cloister supposed to be right near the beach. It wasn't that close to the beach. We learned Italian there. But there was this priest, Don Eraldo de Agostini, and he was, he was close to the movement, and he loved Bob Dylan, but knew, understood no English. He said, look, um, can you translate this into Italian for me? And I said, well, I could, but, you know, we, we have trouble understanding Bob Dylan's English. Uh, and so I said, but if your DVD has English subtitles, I can translate it into Italian for you. So you put on the English subtitles, uh, and I translated and said, good, I have a present for you. I have three books in English. I can't read English, but they're your books. And they were um, Monsignor Luigi Giussani's three books, The Religious Sense, At the Origin of the Christian Claim, and Why the Church. Mm. And so through him and through these books, I encountered the movement, Communion and Liberation. When I came back from my studies in Rome in 2008, I was helping an elderly priest, Father Elmer Smith, with Mass at a St. Cecilia Church in Cincinnati. And he... Father Elmer, his classmates with Monsignor Eamon, they were ordained in 1950. And so Father Elmer was trying to talk to this young Italian couple, and he was sort of mixing Latin and Italian together. Uh, and this, this couple had a little boy, Tommaso, and their names were um, uh, uh, Marco and Simona. And so, but Marco and Simona had a kind of a sparkle in their eyes. They were kind of an attractive young couple, and I began to talk to them. I was just back from Rome, so uh, my Italian was still very good. And I began to talk to them, and immediately I thought, I wonder if they're members of Community Liberation, CL. And sure enough, they were, and they were shocked that I knew about the movement. They were like, we haven't met any priests in Cincinnati who have even heard of the movement. Uh, and so they be- we became fast friends. They wound up having three more boys, and I baptized all of them. And then, like, four years after that, they had twin girls. Marco's a physicist, and Simona's a neurocritical care physician, and they have, you know, they have six children, and they're raising a wonderful family. And so we had a small school of community uh, here in Cincinnati, on again, off again, sometimes meeting in people's houses. But then when I became administrator of the Italian church, they began to meet uh, at my parish. Uh, but then I got transferred to the Nuncia church, and so they went to the Dominican parish for a while. And when I came back to Cincinnati then, they began meeting at my parish, St. Ignatius. And our group has grown and grown and grown. So now we have two schools of community, one here and one on the campus of the University of Cincinnati. Uh, and so Monsignor Luigi Giussani, the servant of God, uh, he oftentimes you start the school of community with the Angelus. And after, at, the, at the end of the Angelus, he has a kind of an ejaculatory prayer, Veni Sancte Spiritus, Veni Per Mariam. And so I chose as my Episcopal motto, Veni Per Mariam, uh, to come through Mary. So Veni Sancte Spiritus, come Holy Spirit, come through Mary. And so there's Veni Sancte Spiritus, uh, Veni Per Mariam. Veni Per Mariam is good for me because, you know, obviously the Lord Jesus comes to us also through the Blessed Virgin Mary. Mary is my patron saint, as I mentioned before, on the uh, diocesan shield of um, Columbus. Uh, there's a ship uh, on the waves with the M for Mary, uh, Santa Maria, uh, for uh, on the diocesan crest. So I thought, Veni Per Mariam, come through Mary, uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary has always been close to me my whole life, and so that's what I chose as my Episcopal motto. 
Father Fernandez, Bishop-elect for the Diocese of Columbus, could you close our listeners out with a prayer? Sure. Uh, This is a prayer that's on the uh, back of my ordination prayer card. I was ordained as a priest May 18th, 2002. And it's a prayer attributed uh, to—well, it was written by Adrian von Speyer, who is a Swiss mystic and who was mentored by um, uh, Hans-Urs von Balthasar. Balthasar was named a cardinal by uh, Pope John Paul II. And so here's the prayer. Dear Lord, grant that we contemplate and affirm you and your Church. Carry out what our mission demands in an ever-new spirit, in the spirit of your Mother's consent. Grant also that we pray for this spirit. We know that you yourself are where you send your spirit. The spirit brought you to your mother. The spirit enabled you to, enabled her to carry you, to give birth to you, to care for you. And because in her you found again your own spirit, you formed your church. Since you have called us into this church, make from each one of us a place where the spirit of your church blows, where the will of your father is done, together with you and with the help of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Fernandez, for joining us. Uh, If you'd like to listen to this special presentation again or share it with a friend, you can go to stgabrielradio.com and click on the podcast section. We can't wait to speak with you again very soon. I look forward to it. I look forward to being there in Columbus right now. I'm putting a lot of miles on my car, driving up and down (laughs) I-71, but I can't wait till I'm finally up there uh, and uh, looking forward to the next 25 years of being the Bishop of Columbus. Beautiful. Beautiful. But we'll see you here in Columbus very shortly. All right. God bless you all. God bless you.